I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Steven Reisner, a psychologist, psychoanalyst, and activist. Dr. Reisner has his own podcast, Madness, where psychology and capitalism collide. He was also recently on Rumble with Michael Moore in an episode aptly titled, Madness Can Be Our Friend. Dr. Reisner contributed to Rendering Unconscious the book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Chapart Books, 2019. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Well, what's, what's on my mind is, you know, there is so much energy erupting in the face of the the changes in america i'm, I'm thinking mainly about america i I'm, that still is where where my heart is um and the the changes that are erupting and the polarization that's erupting and the threat that comes from government that's erupting i think that people people have finally realized that that something is not right okay that something in their souls are, is not right and the first way it comes out is in a kind of rage right like everybody starts out like being a baby that's wet or hungry or uncomfortable and there's sort of like this this rage that's coming out and all of development what is supposed to be about how we take rage, mix it with love and make for, you know, human, you know, the best of, of what humanity can create with one another. But right now we have some wonderful rage erupting in the streets of America. And, but everybody's terrified because we have lost the ability to, you know, to mix rage and love together and find a way to adapt it to create change that is responsible. So I, I think Americans have completely lost that idea. Um, we Americans have cha- exchanged, you know, what we as psychoanalysts know that, that being uncomfortable or in pain or sad or frightened, that all of this, all of these are, mobilizations 
that the you know signals that our body is interacting with the world and we have to think things in a new way and that causes like that helps us to grow but for the past 40 years americans have stopped this idea that discomfort leads to growth they have this idea instead that discomfort is bad they they've never gotten past like the six month old stage where if you're uncomfortable, somebody's supposed to come and make it better and change you. And the worst thing in the world is for you to be uncomfortable. And listen, I am part of the generation that, you know, wanted to raise my children not to be uncomfortable and, you know, to, to, to not do to them what my parents did to me. But, but what we don't, so, so what we've done is we've, we've taken consumer goods, we've taken, you know, capitalism, we've taken all of this as, as if the goal of government and civilization is that we should never be uncomfortable for a moment. And so as a result, people just get mad at anybody who makes them uncomfortable and uh, are afraid of change. And we, we, so we have two groups in America, the ones that are afraid of change and the ones who have no choice but to, but to demand change. And there's very little communication. So the, the issue becomes, how do we basically provide a political psychoanalytic um, sensibility to the country where, peop where people understand that if they're frightened or if they're sad, the goal is not you know, to take medication. The goal is not you know, to meditate and then go back and not change anything, but to accept it. The goal is to understand that this is a signal that we have to use for right now, the change has to be radical. I mean, it's, it's, we've been complacent for so long. We've, you know, uh, we've abandoned our responsibility for the government and the world we live in and the earth for so long based on this idea of never being made uncomfortable that uh, that the only solution right now is a radical solution, a radical rethinking, a radical confrontation with uh, the forces of power that, uh, that promise to make us comfortable but really steal everything from us in the process. <laughs> so that's where I'm at today. That's a really good point. And there are so many different directions. I feel like I could go from that. But I think just this basic idea, you know, people need to rethink this idea of mental illness a bit. <laughs> because like, oh. like anxiety, it's there for a reason. So instead of being like, Oh, no, there's something wrong with me, I have anxiety. First of all, everyone has anxiety on some level. But that's part of how we function. But instead of taking something for that, maybe try to figure out why that's happening because there's a reason, there's a reason why any sort of symptom is happening. So instead of just trying to get rid of it so that you can keep going to work like a good little capitalist cog, maybe we should take the time to just figure out why we're having that problem in the first place. Yes, I mean, you know, it used to be that we called anxiety fear. You know, and when, but if you use the word fear, you think, what am I afraid of? And w when it becomes anxiety, you know, Freud started it 
with free-flowing anxiety. And that was a very important concept because, you know, Freud had this idea that sometimes when we were afraid of something, we repressed or denied or dissociated what it was that was frightening us. And all we felt was the fear not attached to something. So that was free-floating anxiety. But for Freud, the goal was to reattach the fear to what was really scaring you in the real world or in your history and doing something about it. And, but it took time because you, know, you had to reattach and reattaching is hard. So yes, this, this idea of fear and anxiety is supposed to be mobilized. We're supposed to protect ourselves, even rage. You know, when we're afraid of something, when something's threatening us, the first reaction there is to be angry. And that's not a terrible thing, as long as we know how to use our anger to protect ourselves. And in order to protect ourselves, we have to first take the time to uh, figure out what the threat is and what we can do about it. Right now, what we do is we want to take a pill because anxiety is such a terrible thing. It's a whole industry, both of psychology and psychiatry. They all have put themselves in the business of taking away our very survival mechanisms. <laughs> you know, and, they, and, and, and we pay them for it. We pay the pharmaceutical companies, we pay psychiatrists, and we pay psychologists to... <clears throat> To, to learn how to cope with anxiety rather than to make social change. Um, so, but there comes a point, and I think hopefully we've crossed the line where enough people are not going to take it anymore. That, that you know, that, they've, that the medicines stop working because the threat is real. And it's very real body, and it's very systemic and it's, totally pervasive. And you've been in the social justice work for a long, long time. Can we talk about that? Uh, sure. <laughs> well, well, you know, I mean, it depends on what you mean by a long, long time. I, uh, I learned to be active. I started being active in social justice work when I was very young, fighting the Vietnam War. And uh, you know, fighting Nixon, and well, no, first fighting Lyndon Johnson. I'm, I, I, that shows you how old I am. Working, at, you know, working for Eugene McCarthy, and then fighting Nixon and and the war. At, but there came a point when I actually um, thought that I would uh, just do my work one person at a time as a psychoanalyst. Um, that if I, that you know, that if you help just individuals that they would be fortified in a way that, that would ultimately change the world. But, you know, as you know, what happened is that, uh, that uh, George Bush started a torture program and psychologists, and I'm a psychologist, so psychologists um, created that torture program. And so I, I was sort of drawn back out of my office into social justice work again with a, a group of psychologists who we just, we all had been active earlier. We were all of that age that we understood, you know, fighting uh, for justice and 
in the 60s kind of way. And we did a lot of research and we uncovered a lot of what psychologists were doing, basically designing the programs at the CIA, designing the torture program at Guantanamo, and doing so in a kind of collusion with the American Psychological Association, which we spent 10 years exposing and finally changing. I mean, it was an extraordinary fight. I learned all about uh, the priorities of the CIA, the DOD, the intelligence agencies, and how they uh, manipulate institutions so that they can do their their work, but especially the work that they want to keep hidden, like torture. Um, and the CIA worked uh, clandestinely with the APA and the DOD worked openly with the APA and psychologists who were part of the APA um, created those torture programs. And the APA tried very hard to stop us from exposing the role of psychologists and the role of the APA in that awful work. And eventually it, it came out and eventually so it, it was stopped. The, I mean, it's still a fight. We're still fighting with the operational psychologists of the military division who basically, you know, they, they were rightfully shamed by the revelations that we brought about, that they were participating in this awful work and they never, ever stood up and acknowledged what operational psychologists did in terms of torture. They never took responsibility for it. They never worked to, uh, to change it for the most part. There was one psychologist who complained to his superior, but for the most part, if you look at who exposed the torture program in the American, uh, at the American torture program at the CIA and the DOD, you have uh, interrog young interrogators who were not psychologists who felt guilty. You have uh, a nurse who felt terrible about it, who blew the whistle on it. But psychologists not only didn't blow the whistle on it, but they continued to support their role in overseeing uh, these enhanced interrogations. It's, it's such a scandal. Um, and today the operational psychologists are fighting to go back to those positions as doing, doing, uh, as supervising those interro you know, interrogations in, at Guantanamo or the, you know, the next Guantanamo. So it's a battle that we've won for the moment, but we have to keep fighting. Um, and it's been an eye opener. So I've learned, you know, how, you know, the, the C, the, the DOD likes to pay lip service to being against torture when, you know, they just redefine torture and continue doing it. And I use those lessons to listen, for example, now to the Supreme Court's decisions. You know, I am very wary of the liberal Roberts Court. You know, everybody's saying, look at what he's doing for GLBTQ rights. Look at what he's, you know, look at what he's doing uh, for, you know, uh, DACA or for abortion. You know, he made decisions that were not, that were surprising. But if you read between the lines of those decisions, what he's been doing is simply uh, reworking the demand for 
the court cases so that when they actually come up, they will be bulletproof. They, he's, what he did with DACA was he just said that Trump didn't do the application, didn't cancel it right. He has to cancel it better the next time. What he, you know, so what he's doing is, and the DOD did the same thing. They're, they're an iron fist in a velvet glove. They will give the liberals, uh, they'll throw the liberals a bone when it doesn't matter. And liberals love that. They, liberals, like neurotics, love crumbs. And they get crumbs and they think, ah, you see, there's hope. And they, you know, and they don't get how the, the conservative forces in America play. The conservative forces in America play so that they never lose where it counts. So that's what I learned in fighting torture. And that's how I'm applying it to fighting, you know, the current, uh, the current anti-democratic forces of the Republican Party. Um, and believe me, they're anti-democratic forces because if there was a true democracy in America, there would be no Republican Party because we all know they're a minority. But everything that the Supreme Court does lately, everything that uh, the Republican Party does is to undermine a true democratic vote, a true democratic process because they want to keep power and they want to do it in a way that looks democratic and looks, you know, like they're really fighting for justice, but you just go two layers under the surface and what they're doing is undermining democracy. Absolutely. I'm really concerned about these 200 federal judges who've been appointed to lifetime positions. That's right. Absolutely. And yeah, the, the, the criteria for those judges is that they, that they're ideologues and they, and Trump is making sure that he's railroading that through as fast as, as he can. The positions on the Supreme Court are, you know, the equivalent of a thousand of those, uh, those judges. So we've pretty much lost our backstop, you know, the, it, in the 60s. And, you know, I treated a lot of 60s radicals, not a lot, but a number of 60s radicals. And what always was interesting to me about treating 60s radicals is that is how much they believed that if they got their cases to the courts, that the court would give them a fair trial back in the 60s. And in, indeed, the courts in the 60s did give them a fair trial. But now, I don't believe that the courts are, uh, are upholding a democratic process. I mean, if you look at the gerrymandering, the, the gerrymandering decision of the Supreme Court, that they basically said that the majority uh, party in any state can manipulate the state's voting districts including the voting districts for Congress in any way they want, that that's a state right. That is such a manipulation in favor of the Republican Party maintaining their power and hoping that it never gets turned around so that the Democrats can do it. And it is so anti-democratic as a decision that people have to be aware. And of course, Citizens United and, you know, the, 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 the fact is that America has been transformed by the courts into a religious corporatocracy. 
a Christian corporatocracy where, uh, you know, the religious power, is, the, the separation of church and state is ending. Um, uh, schools are becoming corporatized. Uh, churches are becoming uh, political institutions and um, corporations have more rights than individuals. And so, yes, the fear of what's happening to the courts on the federal level and on the Supreme Court level is justified. There is no backstop. There is no judicial separation of powers anymore. I mean, it seems to me that there is barely a separation of powers, you know, anywhere. We have uh, the Senate that is simply a, uh, a rubber stamp of, of Trump uh, political uh, actions and we have and and we have the Supreme Court that is ideological and we I mean the house and the house has been completely stymied from doing any genuine investigations I, I mean people talk about Roberts as being a surprise but he just decided for example to delay uh the court is delayed deciding on the houses that the case of the house against Trump, where the house wants to be able to see certain documents in order to investigate the administrative, the executive branch. And Robert said, well, we'll postpone that till after the election so that nobody has to actually investigate Trump before the election. I mean, this idea that a, a case that is so important that is so timely that the timing of that case is you know will affect whether this president should be running that's the kind of thing that you, the supreme courts in the past did emergency decisions on but no roberts is brilliant at delaying the cases that will interfere with his political agenda and you know and sense and uh, highlighting the cases that you know look good but are actually vacuous in their heart um so so yeah we we don't have a court system that we can count on anymore um the fabric of democracy is unraveling uh in in uh, on every level and that's the aim that's the aim of 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 the Trump administration and the Trump strategy, um, but it was created by the corporatocracy that preceded Trump. Exactly, this whole thing has been in play for a long, long time. And you gave the talk that I reference all the time, by the way, on this podcast, uh, the crazy like a fox talk, right around yeah. the inauguration at the new school. And that talk like really struck so many chords with me and it was so helpful. Thank you. Um, yeah. Because I didn't literally growing, this has been going on my whole life and my entire adult life, like my first election voting was Gore versus Bush. Okay. <laughs> so like, and I lived in Florida. I'm from Florida originally. And, you know, that was the state where the president's brother was the governer. And we were the ones who like decided the election. 
and they found a whole bunch of ballots that had been like, you know, confusing for older people, of, of which there's a lot in Florida. And then they literally found like trucks of ballots like dumped in the Everglades. You know, <laughs> it was like these cheating on elections has been happening my entire adult life, at least, yes. you know? Yeah. Um, so I didn't even really understand like what a government was supposed to do. I've always just seen them as this like adversary that you have to kind of like get around because <laughs> they're so problematic. <laughs> and yeah. you explained like very clearly um, that like, you know, all the things that a government's supposed to provide to its citizens, of which, like I said, I wasn't even clear what that was, um, have turned be, been turned into big businesses, being like the policing and the military, the prison system, the education system, uh, the healthcare system. All of these things are big businesses when they should be provided by the government, and that way they yes. wouldn't be so corrupt. Yes, and don't forget housing while we're at it, right? Because yeah, I mean, this is one of the benefits of having lived as long as I've lived, because when I was young, there was a cultural norm that your housing was supposed to cost 25% of your income. And that if you looked at housing and you looked at income in various cities or towns, you basically the norm was that landlords would bait, would sort of charge uh, 25% of the of the normal income and poor people, you know, had uh, less expensive housing and middle income people had middle income housing and wealthy people had wealthy housing. But that was kind of the idea. And you didn't, you didn't uh, rent or buy a house. You didn't buy a house because you were hoping to make a profit on that house. You bought a house uh, with a 30 year mortgage. You you know, you paid off the mortgage over time. It took a certain percentage of it. And then it was the, the mortgage would get paid off just about when you would retire. And so you would have a kind of a retirement if you, if you sold your house and moved into a smaller place or whatever. There was, it was all part of a, a culture that took for granted certain norms of what, what people needed to live. Education was, I know this is hard for people to believe today, but ed public education when I was young was free. City College, Brooklyn College, Queens College, state universities, they were free or just about free. Um, healthcare was very inexpensive. Blue Cross Blue Shield was nonprofit. The amount of profit they were allowed to make was, lim was, was limited by law. They, you know, they, and, in those days, we didn't have the concept of economic growth. We had the concept of making a living. So that's all changed now, uh, thanks to Reagan and neoliberalism. That, and so what has happened is that corporations have leveraged basic human needs. So they discovered that basic human needs, people, you know, instead of government making sure, like, like when we started talking about, uh, you know, the, the, that babies, um, you know, when they feel anxious, they have to be taken care of. Um, and that eventually um, you learn to, when you know you're gonna be taken care of on a basic level, and you get used to it, you eventually learn to take care of yourself and you switch from need 
to pleasure and to taking care of the ones you love and becoming a care, one who takes care rather than you know, being taken care of. And government, as a kind of a good parent, um, doesn't you know, give you everything, but does make sure that you're not panicking constantly so that you could develop yourself in some way or another. Uh, based on, you know, furthering yourself. And so government is supposed to ensure that people's, you know, people are not desperate for food, for health care, for housing, for protection. But corporations discovered that in desperation, people will pay, will pay. And if you frighten them, they will pay more. And so if you frighten people with losing their homes, you can charge them more and more and more. You frighten people about their, about their health care, you can charge them more and more and more. You can charge them for everything that, that used to be part of the cultural norm that it was supposed to be reasonable and that we were all supposed to be able to, uh, to achieve basic health care, basic housing, basic uh, have, you know, availability of employment, basic uh, police protection. Uh, but now all of that has, and basic you know, police and prison system, all of that has been privatized. All of that takes, you know, takes so much out of the, the, inc the wealth or income of everybody that you know, more than that, fifty percent of Americans don't have enough money. If there's an emergency, I mean, if there's an emergency, they don't have enough money. Well, we just had an emergency. We just had. We are having a three-month emergency. You know, more people are out of work than ever before since the Great Depression. It's probably similar to the Great Depression, and that, of course, uh, goes to. Uh, black and brown and indigenous people more than anybody. Their unemployment level is much higher. Uh, it's a healthcare emergency and people are not uh, insured and those who are insured are underinsured. Suddenly everybody, especially people of color and indigenous people um, are, are in a situation of desperation. The failure of government is clear, the favoritism of corporate needs, of concentration of wealth, that's what we have. And I, I was able to talk about it at the New School um, as, you know, that Trump wasn't the problem. Trump was the exposure of the problem that already existed. What made Trump so scary is that he didn't pretend to be anything other than what our government had already become, but everybody was still pretending was different. So we were pretending we were still a democracy. We were pretending that we were a meritocracy where people still you know, could achieve their American dream. And if you just worked hard enough. And what Trump showed is that if you cheat enough, if you bully enough, if you start with enough wealth and you, and you sue people who stand in your way and you, you threaten them, um, that you can achieve power. And Trump is brilliant at it. And he just used the norms of corporate America. 
you know, I, on, on my current podcast, I say that, you know, everybody's trying to analyze, you know, diagnose Trump. And they say that the diagnosis is that he's a narcissist and a sociopath. And I say in 21st century America, narcissism and sociopathy are not signs of mental illnesses. They are strategies for success. And we see that, you know, 20% of CEOs are, have all of the, the symptoms of sociopathy. You can call them symptoms. I would call them corporate strategies and corporate values. That, that There's no mental illness here. Calling this a mental illness is a fantasy that, that this is not America's uh, underbelly norm. That this is, you know, that this is not corporate America. Talk. Yeah, it's so the norm. And that's the thing is that that's why, like, in the impeachment, he's like, what about the phone call? We do that all the time. And Giuliani said the same thing. Like, there, I'm sure, I mean, we've known, we've heard so little about what's going on. You can't even imagine, like, what's going on that we don't know about. And, like, clearly, like, of course the U.S. is negotiating like that all the time. Okay, do this for us and we'll do this for you. Of course we are. You know? <laughs> and Absolutely. he's just like, what's the problem? This is how it works. Like, and everyone else is like, no, that's wrong. And he's like, is it? Because this is how it works. <laughs> I know. It's so interesting. You know, when, when Bush, after September 11, Bush and Cheney started advocating for a couple of things. One was torture. And they, you know, they, the executive orders were pretty severe, that they would torture, that evidence gotten under torture would be acceptable in a court of law, that international law no longer applied to the United States, that we could make our laws ourselves, and that the president would make all the decisions. And for a while, people were so scared, nobody questioned it. Um, but then the, the human rights organizations, the, inter, you know, the European Union, the UN, people started saying, wait a minute, we have international law, we have moral values, we have our, our sense of what's right and what's wrong. And what Bush and Cheney did or felt they had to do was to put all of the, their new decisions underground again. So they, you know, they, they had to, they, they had a moment when they thought we could just say outright what we, what the CIA has been doing all along. And just now everybody understands that we have the right to publicize it and we have the right to make our own laws and the laws are laws of power, not of democracy. And they tried it, but they got intimidated actually by the world's response. And so they went back to trying to hide the torture and trying to hide the, you know, the collusions in torture with Britain, with other countries, and they've tried to push it back underground. And we went back to the old pattern of they try to do it secretly, we try to expose it. When it's exposed, there's shame, and we, we correct it temporarily. And guilt and shame was the check on government excess it was working, you know, less, less successfully over the decades, but at least there was some beginnings, there was still some vestiges rather of guilt and shame being able to have some power, some vestiges that we want, aspire 
to a moral society. Trump has did the same thing that Bush and Cheney did after September 11th. He says, this is the way we do it, but he has no guilt and shame whatsoever. He is a, his character is uh, a character that is, that is the opposite of guilt and shame. It's brazen power for its own sake. It's brazen power and threat. And he's determined to make reality totally fit in with what for others is, you know, the, the secret for other Republicans and for other corporatists, that's the secret agenda. For Trump, it's the public agenda. And he's so strong in his ability to bully, so creative and so ruthless, like some of the, you know, totalitarians and fascists in history, he just lets people know that they're gone if they don't support him, and he gets rid of them if they don't support him. And so everybody around him is terrified, and he has the rationalization that this is how it's always been done anyway, and, uh, you know, morality and power are the same. Morality, power, and reality, as I see it, he says, are the same. And so he has succeeded where even Bush and Cheney failed because nobody has leverage against him. And he so frightens the people that we, you know, totally have lost our the power of our moral bearings, the power of our ethical stance. We've been like we're like deer in headlights. Uh, even the liberals are like deer in headlights. We, are, we, we, we don't have a kind of a moral basis to oppose Trump. All we can do is say that he's a monster, he's crazy, we have to stop him, which is an empty argument. It's a, it's a, it, that argument has no weight. And so our politician that we're putting up against Trump, Joe Biden, stands for nothing except getting rid of Trump. But he doesn't stand for anything because people are afraid of, you know, of actually being responsible, being ethical, stand, you know, thinking about how we, wanna, uh, how, we, how we wanna craft a democracy that is actually for the first time maybe equal that for the first time recognizes the power hierarchy that we've been suppressing all these years and starting in a sense from scratch um, to create a democracy of the people, by the people and for the people that we've never actually had. But liberals don't get that that actually requires living with our fear and taking risks. So it's much easier for them to say, oh, Trump is crazy, rather than saying Trump is America and we have to fight for a new America. And we need leaders who will fight for a new America and not, you know, old leaders like Biden or Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton or the, you know, the neoliberal Democrats who, you know, whose whole aim is to try to put the genie back in the bottle so that we can pretend we're a democracy while we're really a corporatocracy. Right now, we have the opportunity to stop pretending and stop fooling ourselves. But to do that, we have to stop pretending that Joe Biden is, you know, stands for anything in terms of the progressive future and 
all that he is, is a, I think, I mean, listen, of course, I'm going to work for him. I'm going to vote, vote for, for Biden. <laughs> We're all going to work for him. We're all going to vote for him. But I'm not, I am not so naive as to think that that, that working for Joe Biden or voting for Joe Biden is going to take Trump out of the White House. Joe Biden, I do not believe that Joe Biden is going to take Trump out of the White House. I just don't, I think that that is not what we need to prepare for. We need to prepare for how we physically eject Trump from the White House. Uh, when he refuses to leave. When he refuses to have an election. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if he thinks he's going to lose, the election will be canceled. As you saw with the ballots in Florida. Yeah, no, they literally like found them dumped in Everglades. <laughs> and there was arguments about it. And then what they do, what, then what the media does is they all start uh, calling, they all start calling Gore sore loser. You're sore loser wanting a recount and all this stuff. And they st- they're like schoolyard bullies. Like really, yes, they right. just start like picking on him until he finally relented, you know? And it's like, what a different world we might have been if, if Gore had won that election. Yeah, oh my God. But <laughs> what I, you know, when I, I worked with, with Michael Moore on this movie, Fahrenheit 11.9. And in the process, um, we, you know, Michael wanted to know how this happened. How did Trump win? That was the question that was the, the question that sparked the movie. And so, he thought, uh, well, one way we can find out how this happened is to interview Steve Bannon, because he was there right at the heart of it. And um, Steve Bannon came to our office and Michael interviewed Steve Bannon. Um, there, are two, you know, there, <laughs> there are two interesting moments in that story. One is when Steve Bannon walked in, Michael said, you know, everybody's been really looking forward to meeting you. And we were all sort of surrounding Steve Bannon. He just walked in because we felt that this was like the, that Steve Bannon was the strategist that created the world we're living in. And so Bannon's answer to Michael was, yeah, it's not every day that Satan comes to town. You know, he completely understood that he was Satan, that he is like the antichrist. Um, but then the, 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 the lesson that we learned from Bannon, so Michael asked Bannon, you know, how did this happen? And Bannon said, look, the difference between Democrats and, and our campaign, our Republican campaign, is that Republicans have learned always to go for the head wound. And Democrats come to politics like they are fighting a pillow fight. They come armed with pillows. And that's what you saw in Florida. You saw that the Republicans were not going, were not shouting, oh, it's not fair. That's what the Gore people did. This isn't fair. The Republicans said, what do we need to do to guarantee our victory and fuck everything else? And that's what they've done. They, and they continue to do ever since. They play hardball in, in every way. And you can be sure that Trump will play hardball with this election. He's, he's not going to go. You know, people like Trump, 
totalitarian leaders like Trump, they do not give up power. That's, look at Putin now in, in Russia. I mean, he's now president for life. President for life is something that Trump has been talking about. And he's setting it up. And we have to be so aware of the steps he's taking. Um, because, you know, what this, is, this election is going to be, and it's, a, it's hard for us to, to grapple with this concept. This election is going to be a coup by the president of the United States. You know, we don't have a concept of how a president can initiate a coup because you, a coup is always against the president. But this is going to be a coup on our democracy by the president of the United States, and we have to be ready to fight it. Yeah, and the thing that I always think about the uh, establishment Democrats, that one, like you said, they're, they're in they also believe in like capitalism and this neoliberal problem. So they're perfectly happy with the status quo. It's like they're really where the Republicans used to be and the Republicans have just like gone off the deep end. And like, it's like there is no Democratic Party anymore, it feels like. Um, and I really, I mean, the primaries were much more interesting this year. And I was, you know, of course, Bernie's great. I felt Elizabeth Warren was great. I like Cory Booker personally. I like all of them. And then just to watch them all drop out one by one was so sad. And then once Bernie dropped out, I didn't even realize like how much my hope was like aligned, like hung on him. But but when he dropped out, it's like I haven't been able to watch anything since. I'm like, oh, it's just hopeless. That's how, that's how I felt for a long that's time. True. But I'm going to keep fighting. Um, but I'm just going to vote for whoever the, the other person is, which is apparently going to be Biden now. Um, but the problem is, is that the, the Democrats' establishment, they uh, their kids go to the same schools. You know, they live the same life. Uh, they're, they're all like they're, this really high upper echelon of, of people and they don't really understand. They don't understand what the stakes are because they've never really lived the stakes. They've never been working class or, or you know, ever. That, that yes. I, wait, excuse me. But that I think is exactly right. They all get rich in politics. And this idea of politics being, you know, representing the people is gone it's completely gone being in politics when you said that they you know they go to the same schools they have the same background and they have the same corporate donors and biden is part of that and the the dnc um is all part of that and and right now the 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 people particularly black people and brown people and indigenous people are rising up in the streets. And, you know, I found it so telling that the reaction, uh, you know, of democratic mayors and governors in the face of, a, of an uprising of people who were actually not part of the old boy network, um, the reaction was to call curfew, right? To, to, to prevent people from going to the streets um, because of the, the looting, um, because of the, 
the violence. And who cares about Target? You know, Target's part of the well, problem. It's just corporations. Well, <laughs> well, this is this is very hard for people to take in because you know we've all been trained now not to be made uncomfortable. And when you start a fire, you are you are um, concretizing anxiety. A fire is anxiety. A fire is, this is what our state of being is. We are burning. You know, um, we, are, we are burning. We are, fr- we are frightened. We are burning. We are, we are dying. And we want you to see it in reality. In, a, in, in an image that shows you what we live with every day. And, you know, Democrats and white people were just frightened. They, they got the message. The message is that too many people in this country are burning and, and they want to do something about it and they will do something about it. And so everybody wanted to put out the fire, not use the fire. And right now, the challenge for white people is to join the, join, you know, black and brown and indigenous people on the streets of America, because we have to acknowledge that our country has been burning and the people setting the fires of our burning country is corporate America because they know that if they set fires, they can run in and loot and take advantage of everybody's fear. And we've all been comfortable with that kind of loot. We've been comfortable with the looting of poor neighborhoods. We've been comfortable with the looting of everybody's incomes. We've been comfortable with, with corporate looting for a long time. But as soon as the people say, you know, we're going to expose the looting that has been done to us and we're not going to take it and it turned into a fire everybody wanted to put out the fire rather than use the fire and what we have to start doing more and more is figure out the best ways of using this fire because this fire genuinely threatens corporate america and threatens trump and it we have to threaten corporate America and threaten Trump because we have to make change. So I am all in favor of this, of the rage that is exploding as long as we learn the lesson that rage is a fuel. It has to be tempered by love, meaning love of one another, meaning the, the, you know, what Freud called eros, which is the human basic urge. There's the human basic urge to destroy and the human basic urge to bring people together, to create communities. And it's not that we want love and no rage. Freud says that in order to accomplish the aims of love, we need to use the fuel of rage, but we have to temper it with love. We have to guide it like a, you know, like an energy, you know, in a, in, in, you know, a train or a car or whatever, whatever, you know, food is our fuel. We get mobilized. We have a fuel. The fuel is rage and, the, and it's tempered by love. And right now, that's the battle in the streets. And I think we all, I'm speaking especially to white people, 
because you know others already get this but white people have to stop worrying about being uncomfortable and get get into the streets yeah and stop talking about this i can't wait till it goes back to quote unquote normal because it should not go back to the way it was we need to put something new in place a lot of new things need to be put into place right yeah normal you know i was this idea of normal means the status quo and we once and, and this is again psychoanalysis that you know this idea of normativity as the goal that's capitalism mm -hmm. that's the capitalist idea that you know anything that deviates from the status quo is a an illness that we will cure so that you can go back to the status quo and the alternative is creativity and diversity, that we have to admire the, the differences and the, the, the possibilities of difference. And that, you know, different people's experiences, it, we want to bring together people. We don't want to make them the same. We want to give them each an opportunity to live a rich life, a rich, courageous, loving life, you know, rather than what we have under capitalism and under American democracy forever, which is the hierarchy of power. So, you know, the, the, the essence here is that we want to, that we have to make change because we have to have the democracy that we have not yet had. And that is a democracy that is not created on the backs of people of color. That's, yeah, and if, if we had a society where basic structures were in place, like everybody knew they would get health care if they needed it and knew that they would have housing and got a good free education and knew that there was protection that wasn't militarized police strolling through their neighborhoods. <laughs> right. Um, you know, uh, if, if everybody had like basic, the, the bottom rung of the hierarchy of needs met, <laughs> then everybody would feel less terrified all the time and, and uh, desperate. And then they could work on fostering their creativity or whatever talents and abilities that they have naturally that they want to foster, whatever that is. Yes, and, in heart, even, and since it's based on a value system, not on a power system, you know, power, if power the aim of power is to support a value system, then we don't have to be so afraid of hard times because the value system will hold in hard times. People will look after one another in hard times. Now we have people completely selfish in the good times. What do we expect of them in the hard times? So, I mean, we have to start training values that have, that are, you know, right now what we have is profit is our value system is not a value system. It's a profit system. The only value we have is if something makes money. So you go to school because you'll be able to make more money. You buy a house, not because you want a nice place to live in, but because you want to sell it for a profit. Uh, you know, the hospitals are run like airlines where you can't have empty beds in the hospital. So you've got to get rid of beds. And, you know, so you have so few beds that the beds you have are filled. So if there's an emergency, you don't have enough beds. It's guaranteed that a profit motive is not protective in an emergency. And the role of government is to take care of 
the emergencies, is to take care of the, the needs, the desperate, possibly desperate needs so that we're protected. That's, that's what insurance is supposed to be. Insurance originally was that everybody paid a little so that when you got sick, you were taken care of. Now, it's not that everybody pays a little so that when you get sick, you're taken care of. It's that everybody pays a lot so that shareholders and insurance companies can make a profit. It's, it's completely a value system of profit, not of, uh, not of our basic values of taking care of the poor, of giving everybody an opportunity, an education, a place to live, you know, and looking after one another when, when people are suffering. That value system is gone. And freedom, you know, the idea of equality and freedom, which is our constitutional, you know, guarantee, has been turned to freedom of the marketplace and freedom of the strong to abuse the weak. And that, that, that freedom, you know, is, should be unencumbered according to corporate policy. And exactly. I've been thinking that lately is that, um, like, I've been, since I've left the States, then you get a different perspective on it, like being outside of it. And that's what I've been thinking lately. This, like, freedom that they're talking about all the time, everyone needs to be free. It's like, oh, all the corporations need to be free to be able to be completely deregulated so that they can poison people, make them sick, and then make money off of it, et cetera, and terrorize them and then put them in jails that they also make money off of. Uh, without any regulations or anybody looking over them to make sure they don't abuse the citizens. That's what freedom has turned into. Well, and, it, and it's antagonistic to the basic idea, uh, from my point of view, and this is also a psychoanalytic point of view, of what it is to be a human being, which is cap you know, capable of symbolic thought, capable of something other than a survival of the fittest, you know, evolutionary biology position. So, you know, what corporate America believes that freedom is, is that we're freedom to, you know, to live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world where we, where the strongest live and the weak die. But, but human beings in our capacity for language and our capacity for morality and our capacity to override those instinctive, uh, those instincts and drives and primitive drives, we are supposed to um, adhere to a, a value system. We're supposed to adhere to an ethical system, even a religious system that's based on doing good, not doing strong. And so, you know, if you look at, at, at wisdom through the ages, it's always about looking after the poor, you know, taking a section of whatever you make and giving it away, um, taking care of the sick, you know, the, the Bible talks about the widows and the orphans. Um, but all of that in, you know, with a, the one freedom that we now have, which is freedom of the marketplace and no other freedoms count, so we've gone back to the, the pre-civilization, you know, pre-humanity you know, uh, idea of, uh, of what kind of animals we, we are. And right now, what, what, so we, we've completely lost what, what human beings have always striven for in creating communities and that is you know looking out for the community um 
I mean, we've gone back, you know, a thousand years in terms of, uh, you know, the rule of the most powerful um, pre Magna Carta. Um, and yes, and so, and, and yes, and so um, America has now diverted. America is the worst. I mean, Europe is very different. America has become like, you know, other authoritarian or totalitarian states in the world where it's about power and the ones who don't have power don't want to get on the wrong side of those who do have power. And it's, that's the system that democracy was supposed to be an antidote to. Um, I think that right now, um, I said it earlier, we're, we, what we need is to take responsibility in the streets for creating a new kind of democracy, a democracy without power hierarchies, you know, a democracy that applies our constitution, you know, not just to property owning rich white men, but takes a similar uh, vision of, you know, what's the finest in that humanity is capable of and, and applying it to to all people so that the people who are successful make sure that the opportunities for education and a rich life are available to everybody. Um, that's, that's what we're on the verge of. We're, I mean, the world is going in one direction or the other. Um, and, you know, I mean, we haven't really talked about the climate emergency and how that too is a, is a result of power rather than the value of living at peace with the rest of the earth, you know, being part of, the, of an ecosystem of earth rather than thinking that the earth simply exists for our exploitation. No, absolutely. And um, as we talked about before, we were recording, um, you know, seeing how much people not traveling and people staying home has helped. Um, I know for one, I'm going to be much more mindful about travel when things do open up and try to just take trains and things that are already available rather than flying or driving a car. Um, of course, America is like so dependent on the car. I really wish they would build railway systems across the country, you know? Um, yeah, but I really hope that we all take this opportunity to really rethink. It's like a cut, you know? It's like a, we have a pause right now. Everybody's been forced to pause by the natural world. <laughs> we had to stop what we were doing because this wasn't working anymore. And I hope we like think about it and then like choose to uh, make steps forward in a different way rather than just react being reactionary or just trying to put things back into place how they were before. Totally. I, yeah, absolutely. That, but, and it, but it's only going to happen if the people demand it. In America right now, they're already talking because people were not traveling Amtrak, right? The American uh, rail system um, is losing money. And so when it's losing money, the, the, you know, the, the board of Amtrak and the government are immediately looking for how they can close stations for underserved communities. 
So they're already stopping service to underserved communities rather, you know, and making them more reliant on cars and on, uh, you know, fossil fuel guzzling industries. And that's the opportunity. You know, Naomi Klein talked about uh, the, the government taking advantage of every crisis to further capitalist aims. And the only antidote to that is, it, it are the demands of the people, uh, is the fire of the people, is the, the going to the street and manifesting our rage one way or another, hopefully um, by refusing to accept this, by you know, demonstrating, I, my vision is that people need to surround the White House and you know, embargo the White House and not allow anything in or out until it is forced, until the, the government as it is, is forced to surrender to the people. And, uh, you know, I think about uh, Pete Seeger's banjo. He had the, the words around, he wrote around the banjo, this machine surrounds hatred and forces it to surrender. And I think we need to be, you know, Pete Seeger's banjo, the people on the street have to surround hatred, have to surround corporate oppression, have to surround the police departments, have to surround the White House and force it to surrender by, by the strength of the people. And then we can, once we can align with, you know, the earth, we can align with the pleasures of actually being alive on this planet rather than the pleasures of destroying the planet. That's our, that's our choice. Those are the two pleasures that are fighting each other. The pleasures of being alive. I think about this all the time, how sad it is because uh, I have a really nice view of the moon a lot of the time from my apartment. And I always like look at the moon, look at the sky. And I just think of how sad that like we're on this amazing thing that's in space. And it's like totally, I mean, if we just sat and thought about it all the time, I guess we would be overwhelmed. And I guess that's why we don't. <laughs> But it's like yeah. so amazing that this is even here, this creation. And then like, this is what we do with our time here. You know what I mean? It's just like, what? But I think you got it exactly. That beauty and love are actually overwhelming. And they're a little hard to take. And when we experience beauty and love and nature fully, you know, for me, it makes me cry. And it's, I'm in awe of it. And it's easy to hide from that level of, of sensitivity and human experience. But it's what our opportunity on earth is all about. We human beings, you know, are not only alive on earth, but we're aware of it. That's, the, that's what makes it so poignant, that we're aware of being alive on earth and we're aware of death. We're aware that our time on earth is temporary and that we get this short opportunity to breathe and smell and taste and look and align with nature and love each other. And it's a brief period and it is so overwhelming. So most people that they have to kind of take drugs to numb it 
or they have to turn it into something destructive or something else. And I think, I mean, our job as psychoanalysts is to help people tolerate beauty and love and make something of it for other people and themselves. So yeah, that's, that's it. We can look at the moon or we can, you know, destroy the earth. <laughs> those, are, those are our choices. And I want to make sure, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I want to make sure that we talk about your podcast because yeah. I love it. And I feel like there's so much that's so reactionary nowadays and people just reacting all the time on Twitter, social media, and like everything is a play-by-play, even the news. Like the news used to be like journalism was like taking a step back and like seeing everything play out and then like making a story or drawing a bigger picture rather than like reacting to it in the moment. But now everything's just like, even the newscasters, everything's just 24 hours reaction. But I really love that about your podcast is that like you take some time, you're looking at everything and seeing how everything's playing out. And then you clearly like sit and think about it and then like create these podcasts where you're like drawing bigger pictures, drawing connections through time. And it's really refreshing. So I want everyone to listen to it. (laughs) Well, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I wish I could do them more rapidly, but as you said, they, they take time. I, I, you know, I, it's like cooking, you know, you know I, 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 I work on the ingredients and I put them together and I cook it and I cook it before I, before I come up with one. The basic idea is using my experience and values as the psychoanalyst to open my perspective and keep it, open my perspective on on politics and particularly on capitalism. I mean, you can look at it as if psychoanalysis is a process of openness and responsibility and capitalism is a process of closing and exploitation. And so I I call the podcast Madness uh, where psychology and capitalism collide it's really uh, madness where psychoanalysis and capitalism uh, collide. Um, and I use the word madness ironically, because I think that I'm trying to, to make the case that being different, being angry, being outside the norm is a step on the road to change for the better and that we have to be mad in terms of angry and sometimes we have to be mad in terms of not aligning with the status quo and the norms. Um, And so I I basically am trying to create an action, uh, you know, a, a, a mobilization through understanding, but um, through psychoanalytic understanding and confrontation. But what I learned about psychoanalysis is that too often it's passive. Too often understanding is, see, you know, is seen as the goal and understanding is not the goal. Understanding is the means for enacting, you know, for, for, for change, for activism. 
So that's, that's what my podcast is trying to do, is trying to use understanding, use a kind of challenge to the status quo in the interest of mobilization against exploitation. Exactly. Uh, understanding is the is part of the process of creating change. And you're so full of little gems and insights that I, that really always stick with me. And uh, this, even just today, you said uh, this norm, this idea of a norm, that's capitalistic. And like now that's, that's going to be central because it's like, where did this norm come from? Everyone believes in this norm they're supposed to adhere to, which like nobody adheres to, like maybe 1% of people, you know what I mean, are in this like mm -hmm. tiny category, but probably not even. Everybody has some sort of deviation from this weird norm. Where did it come from? It's this capitalist ideal that's just not, it's not based on human reality, human, yeah, yeah the experience of human beings. Yes, a different exactly. logic. Yeah, capitalism and consumer goods are based on shaming you into thinking that you're not fitting this normative ideal and then charging you for how to get there and never letting you get there. And that's the problem with American medicine too. American therapy, American medicine, the way it's paid for is to keep you needing it all the time rather than becoming free of it. And that's, that's capitalism depending on the capitalist norm and being ashamed if you deviate from it. And the goal of psychoanalytic thinking and the goal of, I think, human creativity is diversity of, and, you know, diversity is, is really uh, the, the human capability and, uh, and the human freedom. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Steven Reisner, psychoanalyst, psychologist, and activist. For more, listen to his podcast, Madness, where psychology and capitalism collide. Dr. Reisner's lecture on the dance of the occult and unconscious in Freud was episode six of Rendering Unconscious podcast. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash van. E-S-S-A-2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org.
churches. churches. It is it present, is present throughout. throughout. Muscles, muscles, bones, bones in, a body in a body are free. free. Southern, Southern Belle, their stuff. stuff. There is someone, someone I, produced, produced by, by and for. Doctor's, doctor's appointment. Our metamorphosis. The Dada. Surrealism. What are you, what doing, are you doing here? And comfort. And comfort. Let's apply, Let's apply in future, in future whatsoever. whatsoever. We all we die. All die. And brought on another. another. Charles, Charles both once said, said and submission. submission. Even, Even in, in the beating, the beating as, well as well as the, as the one, they hugged, they hugged and, and was, the, was word. the word. Bin, Bin word. word. You, you in the, in word. the word. Rooftops, Rooftops and basements. And basements. For you. For you.